All right. Uh, two long years in the making. We're finally back together in person. I can't believe we're here. Let's start with a round of applause. How's everybody feeling today? Like first day of school type vibes for the folks here? Cool. Um, so we've got uh, a crowd of folks streaming in on our Zoom and on LinkedIn. We've got colleagues from some of our other care offices. So uh, welcome to everybody. Thanks for being with us. Welcome back to in-person Tuesday Talks. Let's give a round of applause for that. Um, shout out to DJ Sofa. We finally get to see the man in person. <laughs> the soundtrack to our lives for the last couple of years. <laughs> uh, and we're excited just to be here. Uh, so welcome back to the Innovation Hub. Um, the Care Atlanta Global Innovation Hub convenes the people and organizations dedicated to defeating poverty by achieving social justice and equity everywhere. The Innovation Hub creates the space programs and support systems that connect leaders with global practitioners in hopes of solving our world's most pressing problems. Tuesday Talks was created to build bridges by exploring compelling topics. And we hope that each week our participants leave with a deeper understanding of the topics we discuss and feel more clear about how they can contribute to solutions in their personal journey. At the Innovation Hub, we believe in the leadership of women. And we especially look to use our platform to highlight expertise from Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. We're committed to centering and uplifting all justice-centered voices in our conversations and programming. I wanna take y'all back in time two years ago uh, when we were just at the very beginning uh, of the pandemic that we're still navigating and still managing. Um, and we all remember the harsh effects that it had on the economy, on folks' sense of safety, on folks' sense of security. Since the lockdown measure started uh, back in 2020, um, we've seen all over the world unemployment start to spike. We saw that nearly 50 million people in the United States were seeking benefits and seeking ways uh, to be assisted through the pandemic. The demand for food aid increased as much as eightfold by some estimates. Community organizations, including food banks across the nation, were overwhelmed by the increased demand on their services. And that's where the Care Package Relief Program came in. It was born to provide life-saving food and services to the most vulnerable communities in the US while putting people back to work. Care Package Relief builds on platforms with community, builds on partnerships, excuse me, with community organizations and gig platforms like DoorDash, TaskRabbit, and Lyft. And we look to provide a surge of workforce support to our community partners so that they might reach radically more people in need and resource their ability to book this work as paid on-demand jobs for community members. It addresses multiple challenges facing stakeholders across the system. So this week, in addition to celebrating being back in the office, we're celebrating the second year anniversary of Care Package Relief, and we're happy to announce that we're closing in on 12 million care packages delivered to families and people in need. That's worth an applause. And this effort has put millions of dollars into the pockets of community members through these gig jobs. Um, and so before we get started hearing from some of our great panelists today who have been a part of building this program, we wanna show you a quick video that highlights the impact uh, that this effort has had. We were at the beginning of the pandemic and we came up with this crazy idea that we could help to surge support to folks who were gonna be food insecure and for folks who were gonna lack access to living wage earning opportunities. We found a couple of people along the way that believed in the possibility, and we stood up our pilot of this effort. Something that started off as a really simple idea has now scaled to deliver over 12 million care packages to folks across the US. After we met with CARE and that relationship started to grow, the jobs and food program, or I guess it's the food and jobs program, that helped us to be able to pay people. Volunteers are great. We couldn't do anything that we do without volunteers. We still operate at around 90% volunteers, but being able to give a little help financially to those that are here serving, that dynamic helped us to be able to not only have a few people that were here temporarily, we were actually able to hire a few folk permanently. 
here most of the time. Taking information for Spanish-speaking people, I help with that because I see a lot of Hispanic community here. We have been serving the community for 80 years. We are a neighborhood community center with multiple programs. We decided to start sending out food to their homes. And we did it first with our vans. And then that's when you guys came in. The care came in and helped us out with DoorDash. And uh, we were able to start delivering to everyone in a faster pace as well and with more, more people. I like to do this kind of deliveries because I work with my own time and I try to help other people that they don't come to get the foods. Our gig platform partners agreed to our insistence that all of the jobs in this program were done at a living wage. And that's been an important piece of how we approach the work and the ethos that underlies this entire effort. We've been working with CARE since 2020. Since then, we've been able to provide over 1.5 million pounds of free groceries to people. And a lot of that work is because of the taskers and the door dashers and the partnership that we've had with CARE. CARE reached out to me and asked me what did the community need, how could they help, and a CARE organization came in and just helped me take the community by storm, uh, helping to provide food, uh, helping to provide jobs, opportunities. But more importantly was, you know, the hope, you know, and the love. We hope that we would expand this effort to as many communities that are looking to partner with us so that we know when folks experience crisis or when folks are having a tough time accessing critical food supply, we can surge the support to them that they need to survive that challenging period. Our food distribution program has grown by 60% since partnering with CARE. summary of the work. So in today's conversation, we'll talk with some of the architects of the work and some of the folks that have been pushing us forward. But before we get started, I want to um, also acknowledge a few folks that have joined us, a few special guests. So one of our community partners, um, Bethel's Heavenly Hands, is in, uh, Pastor Lee from Bethel's, is in from Houston, Texas today. Um, Pastor Lee has done work with us in Houston, in Louisville, in the Gulf Coast, and now he's here in Atlanta. So he's kind of like the all-star partner of the program. So Pastor Lee, thank you for being with us today. So let's get right into it. Let me introduce you to our great speakers today. Uh, first, I want you to meet Marcus Sabs. Marcus is a passion for community that stems from his family's commitment to servicing his hometown of Americus, Georgia. As a graduate of Morehouse College, Marcus's dedication to empowering his community started in a traditional educational world where he excelled for three years as a teacher for Uncommon Schools in New York. Most recently, Marcus has worked closely with creating the Food and Jobs Program here at CARE, DoorDash, UPS, TaskRabbit, and many of the other partners that you'll hear about uh, to deliver those 13 million meals that we talked about. Marcus, thanks for being with us. Next, I want you all to meet Andy Bob. Good to see you, Andy. <laughs> Andy serves as CARE's Associate Vice President of Major Gifts. She spent the past 20 years working with incredible organizations and local stakeholders to catalyze change and opportunity within vulnerable and under-resourced communities in the US and internationally. Andy's experience spans strategic planning, impact measurement, creating donor programs for a strategic philanthropist, and building and nurturing strong teams. Good to see you, Andy. Thanks. <laughs> Next, I want you all to meet Michelle Nunn. <laughs> Michelle has been president and CEO of Care USA since 2015, a leading humanitarian organization that fights global poverty and provides life-saving assistance in emergencies. That's for all the people on Zoom who don't know <laughs> all that background. Um, in the last fiscal year, Care has worked in more than 100 countries and directly reached more than 70 million people. Michelle took the helm of Care in 2015 
and is spearheading an ambitious strategy to support 200 million of the world's most vulnerable people to overcome poverty and social injustice by 2030. Thanks for being with us, Michelle. And next, I want you all to meet Nicole Steele. Nicole is the Director of Health Equity Programs at the Social Justice Learning Institute in Los Angeles. Her dedication to this work began as an Inglewood resident uh, trying to make changes on a neighborhood level that would create access to healthy food. Nicole's work at SJLI began with the creation of the 100 Seeds of Change initiative that helped build over 100 gardens in Inglewood and the surrounding areas. Nicole, thanks for being with us. All right, so let's get right into it. So I actually wanna go back to March 15, 2020, uh, which means probably nothing to most of the people in the room, uh, but that's actually the day that uh, the idea came alive. That was kind of the first spark uh, around the care package relief model. And uh, Marcus, you might remember the problem solving that we had that day um, when we were thinking about the way that the world was changing, what we might expect on the horizon. Tell us a little bit about that first kind of brainstorming session and how the basic idea came together. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so from what I remember, uh, the initial conversation that we were having was around uh, if the public sneer you had toilet paper or not. <laughs> and, um, you know, we were just trying to figure out when the world was just about to uh, go underground. Uh, we were just thinking about what our response would be, uh, how care would be involved. Um, I was already consulting with uh, Atlanta Public Schools, specifically purpose-built schools around their community engagement. And a part of that work and my scope uh, was around food distributions. And so I was talking to Ryan about how difficult it was going to be to continue to have these food distributions during that time and understanding and seeing the families that would be affected by that. Um, and so we talked more about, you know, what creative things can we do uh, in order to continue with these distributions and to make sure that these people would get the resources that they need, especially the children, uh, you know, within those families. Um, and so we started talking about the different partners that were in play at the time. Uh, and then we began to just pilot uh, the idea. Uh, that looks like waking up at five o'clock in the morning to receive uh, truckloads of food uh, from the uh, different sources of food throughout the community, especially the Atlanta Community Food Bank, uh, getting the food off that truck, setting that food up, and then making a list of families that were traveling on foot uh, with their carts and with their children and seeing if it would be more safe for them uh, to receive a delivery, yeah. uh, a contactless delivery uh, at their doorsteps. Yeah. Um, and from there, we continued to build on those lists. I think where we really started to see a change, Ryan, is when we started to be more intentional about the people that were going to do that work. Yep. And so it started out with, you know, our platform and uh, network of dashers and task rabbits uh, from all over. Uh, but then we began to notice that it would be much more efficient if we started to onboard people within the community to make those deliveries uh, to their own uh, you know, familiar uh, community residents, right. specifically starting with teachers yeah. uh, and those nine month salaried employees that were not going to get the, uh, you know, the summer enrichment right. programs, they weren't going to be able to be employed. Uh, we were still figuring that out. So we saw that change and then we saw uh, that impact and we began doing wellness checks on those families. Right. And so that model really began to expand and scale uh, after that moment. Yeah, and I, I remember each of those steps and that actually ties great into what I wanna ask you, Andy, if you can pass that mic to Andy. Um, because you mentioned Atlanta Public Schools, Marcus mentioned Atlanta Public Schools. And I remember um, a call that you and I had with like a local coalition of Atlanta leaders and community members um, and APS was expressing the challenge and the hardship that they saw on the horizon. And we thought that our model would be a cool one for it. Uh, the only caveat was that we had to raise like $150,000 in a day, right? Um, and so if you ever need to raise $150,000 in a day, Andy's your partner to get that done. <laughs> um, so I, I want to use this also as like an opportunity for us to, you know, memorialize the learnings from that. So talk to us a little bit about some of the strategies that you use, some of the ways that we were able to really kickstart the program early on in our hopes of keeping the efforts going down the road. Sure, I'd love to. 
Y'all, so for 75 years, CARE has worked globally. Um, so this was a big shift for us with our donor community. We needed to tell them, these folks that have known us well in a particular context, why CARE would be a really good partner to try something new in the United States. And it was an opportunity for us to really flex some of our relationships. So um, the first thing we did was we started with people who knew us well and already believed in the power of CARE's work globally and were able to be convinced that, you know, we talk a lot about local to global. Well, we needed to go global to local. We needed to take the things that CARE knew how to do in our global programming and bring it here to the United States. Because the reality is, is that if we care about inequity somewhere else, we have to care about it everywhere. And that includes right here in the United States too. So we started with a donor that knew us well. We had a really long relationship and a good trusting base. And, um, and they were able to help us kick off our US work. I would say that also the way we moved really mattered here, y'all. So one of the things that we did was we listened hard from the jump. Um, we moved with a lot of humility, recognizing that we were not the experts in this space. Those experts were Pastor Lee and Nicole. Um, and we had to listen hard to them and make sure that we were not taking up too much space as care. We were really amplifying either alongside or in some cases from behind. Um, and it was an opportunity for us because I think we learned some things. There are some funders in the space that had never considered care. Um, they were place-based funders, people who cared very deeply about their own communities. We hadn't really had a lot of programming that would resonate with those folks. So it gave us a chance to open new conversations and to build some trust. And I think that the way we moved in the early days, and I give a lot of credit to Marcus and Ryan here, um, it allowed us to build trust, not only with these new funders, but also with the communities that we were working in. And it's opened up new relationships that we're really excited to continue as the US program work continues to evolve. Yeah. Um, but it's been a real pleasure. I should also say, um, I, I'm really grateful that the fundraising team had an opportunity to play a small role in something Big really role, important. Huge role. Well, you know, we were all looking at this, this pandemic from our own seats and it was a real opportunity to be able to move within your own community. And, and that felt really good. We were really yeah. excited to be a part of it. And yeah, I mean, and we're thankful for it. And even some of the ways that we got creative and the ways that we tried to, to your point, tap donors that maybe hadn't considered care before, all of those things were really instrumental in getting things going. Um, and I think that connects well with the question, Michelle, that I have for you, which is around kind of some of the, the decisions that you've had to make leading and steering the ship. Um, CARE is obviously known for its work all around the world and making a decision to, to get active in the US certainly wasn't an easy one. There was a lot for you to consider, a lot for the board to consider, and certainly it would mean asking a lot of other members of the organization. So talk to us a little bit about that decision-making process why you thought it was the right time to get active in the US and what your hopes are going forward. Yeah, well, I think it's, it's, it's a little bit hard two years later to remember how we felt on like March 11th of last year, <laughs> you know, just how uncertain we all were and right. how frightening it was yeah. actually. And it felt like we were sort of, there was a precipice and we didn't know whether we were about to sort of go over it. Um, and, 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 and I mean that economically, I mean that from a public health perspective, uh, I mean that from a sense of those that were most vulnerable already being um, more, more marginalized, more made more vulnerable. And so, uh, I mean, I, all, all credit to the team, because I think we had a board meeting actually in the board, in that board meeting, we said, that, you know, if there was ever a time to, to uh, deploy CARES assets and knowledge and experience around the world in the US, this is that moment. And we've been talking about it for, for a while, but it, we supercharged it yeah. um, literally over that weekend. And yeah. um, I do have to say uh, that um, when Ryan and Marcus presented me with this brilliant idea, my first reaction was, ah, I don't think that'll work you know, <laughs> it, it, with, with great foresight. Uh, um, so, you know, I think the, I mean, first of all, a, a recognition that a lot of times these ideas emerge and evolve over time. Right. Right, because some of the first things that we talked about actually did shift and change yep. the actual compensation of volunteers, yep. a huge piece of this, um, the learning by doing, you know, I think one of the things that we have to all continue to think about is how do we have the agility that we have learned is so important over the last couple of years and how do we act without having all the answers. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, and how do we also uh, create have the kind of creative generative um, I, I would say uh, energy 
for responding in such an emergency and how do we apply that in a broad way and in a way that doesn't deplete us so that we're all you know, exhausted. Right. Um, and so to, to take something and to, um, to make a quick decision without having all the answers, to give a green light to move something forward, even when you're not totally sure that it will work. Right. Um, and then to be able to learn and change and shift and grow as yeah. we move forward. And I think that's still the opportunity before us, but um, a huge amount of credit for creativity, risk-taking and relationship building, because I think that has also been at the heart of this is the connective tissue that we've had with our um, with our partners upon which this is you know foundationally built yeah yeah and I think I mean of course I remember that Sunday meeting that we had on that day and I, I, I will always be appreciative for um, the fact that despite some of those concerns about the model you gave us the runway to just go try the thing <laughs> I mean it truly was um, learning by doing we went from idea March 15th to our first delivery on April 15th. Like that is absolutely like rapid speed. Um, and it meant that we had to learn a lot of things as we went along. It certainly wasn't perfect at the very beginning, um, but I think it, it, it's a testament to what can happen through innovation, through trying and through having the opportunity to test new ideas. Um, and I think that that brings us to uh, Nicole to talk a little bit about the partnership aspect of it, because as, as uh, Michelle mentioned, all of this is really predicated on partnerships with community organizations. That's like the secret sauce of what we do. We imagine the care package relief program is really just infrastructure that can be deployed by the folks who are closest to the communities and who need kind of that extra uh, support in what they do. So Nicole, tell us a little bit about the nature of the partnership, um, you know, from your perspective and some of the things that uh, it's allowed you all to do with evolving your programming or reaching more folks in the community. Oh, let's get your mic on. Yeah. This partnership has been a godsend. I think you're absolutely right. And I've heard some of you echo this already that it's a, it is a secret sauce because communities know what they need. And when they have folks in the community already doing the work to help uplift each other, like that's how communities become whole. So being able to have someone like care.org support us so that we could serve our community in the way that the community said they needed us was really, really important. We had already been addressing food and nutrition insecurity in our city for a long time. We built over hundred gardens. We had been giving away food, but of course when the pandemic hit, it was like, we need to give away way more food <laughs> and, and way more often um, because the demand had become so large and you know our students were suffering and, so I think Marcus and Gabby called us one day and was like, hey, we got this thing that we want to try out. Are you, are you interested? And we were like, yes, sign us up because yes, we will do it. Um, so since you all have come and helped us, it has allowed us to not deplete ourselves because we were a team of five people giving away, you know, thousands of pounds of food every single Friday. So when the taskers came in and were able to, you know, be a part of kind of that family, we put the music on, we're at the, the school, we've got people coming by that see our faces every single week, it became something that was warm and fuzzy, right? Not just this food line of people mm -hmm. feeling, you know, like they're being handed charity. Um, so yeah, we've been able to give away over 1.5 million pounds of food to people every single Friday since March of, yeah. of 2020. Um, and that's been really wonderful. And I think, um, so I've had the cool fortune of like going to visit with some of our community partners and just kind of being on the ground. And it's cool to see like the different flavor depending on what city you're in or who the partner is. But the thing that's common is that you, you can feel that our partners have a pulse on the community and the work that's happening is integrated into the community. It's not like uh, someone showing up to Nicole's point, doing charity, it really is community rallying and coming together. Um, you mentioned, um, Nicole, the, the phone call. Um, I, I think back, we probably made hundreds of calls to community organizations, some of them just straight cold calls, like, do you want a free delivery service for your food? And there's always a question like, yeah, okay, what's the catch? Like, what's the scam going on here? Um, so tell us a little bit about um, kind of what the future looks like for the partnership and for the work that you all are doing. I think the future for us looks big and bright. I have big ideas. Um, if you know me, a lot of this programming has come from I, you know, wild ideas where we take risks um, to try to serve our community. 
I've, I hope that this partnership continues because what it also has allowed is for people to have jobs, right? There are people coming to our office, working with us every Friday, picking up things, delivering to people, creating more community in that way. Um, and then what my hope is that these kind of public private partnerships can expand, right? I would love to see SNAP funding make food recovery and distribution a part of how they service SNAP eligible folks, period. It helps with climate change, right? It helps with nutrition access. Um, it helps with, you know, these types of things where we're able to provide jobs for our community as well. So yeah, big lofty, hairy ideas, but we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> we will, we'll figure it out. Um, so for those who are uh, live streaming, you can type in questions to the chat and we'll try to integrate them. And for all the cool people in person in Atlanta today, uh, you have table mics set up. So if you have questions for our panelists, we'll integrate them. So with that, for the first time in person, I'll pass it over to Ladarian, uh, who I think most folks are probably meeting for the first time in person. Ladarian's one of the folks who joined during the pandemic. So uh, welcome to the Innovation Hub in person and over to you to walk us through our Q&A. Perfect, thanks, Ryan. So we had one really good question come in from Isla, another one of our fundraisers. She wanted to know specifically for Ryan and Marcus, how did you all feel in those early weeks of working day and night to get this really massive program up and running? Like, did you all lose sleep? Were you dreaming about care package? Like, tell us what it was like for you all. Go for it. Yeah, uh, yeah it, was, it was a scary time, to be honest. So uh, my wife and my then uh, four-year-old child, uh, we were all at home and everyone was saying, stay home. Like, you have to stay home but duty called to not stay home, right? Because I was passionate about this work. Um, so it was scary. I mean, I remember coming home and almost like stripping naked and my wife just like spraying me with Lysol. <laughs> She's like, I don't know where you been. I was, <laughs> I was like, I promise I didn't touch anybody. I didn't do anything. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was a very interesting time. It was difficult. Uh, managing through it um, was, uh, you know, complicated at times. Uh, a lot of long nights, a lot of early mornings, but the work was just so impactful. Um, to be able to feed a family, uh, to be able to connect people with these resources, um, there's, you know, I don't know too many feelings that are greater than that. Um, and so I take that very seriously. And I think that is what energized us to continue to push through and to see, you know, 100 meals turn into 1,000 meals to turn into the first millionth meal. And now we're like, you know, the, you know, sky's the limit. And right. so uh, as long as we have the resources coming in, <laughs> no pressure, we, could, yeah, right? no pressure. we could continue to do that work. So that was my perspective. It was very boots on the ground, but it was uh, now looking back, uh, it's a story that I know that I will tell, you know, 40 years from now, like, what did you do during the pandemic? And I'll be able to tell that story. So I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, I'll build on that. So that, that's exactly kind of the thing that uh, we talk about on our team a lot. Um, I think the coolest thing, and everybody in this room and all the folks, um, all of our care colleagues will be able to say this because it truly was uh, a team effort. When history is told and we look back on this period of time and people ask like, well, what did you do during that crazy period? Some people will say they got better at baking. Some people will say uh, they learned how to DJ. Uh, some people will say they depleted their liquor cabinet. Um, but what we'll be able to say is that we delivered 13 million meals to our neighbors who were in need. And to me, like that is like the big picture. And that's the thing. Um, I'll, I'll give two quick reflections on what I remember, a couple of things that I remember from those early days. So one, uh, once we knew we had infrastructure to pilot the effort in San Francisco, um, I got on a flight from Atlanta to SF so we could stand up the pilot. And this was like one of those scary, like apocalyptic type flights. It was me and like five other people on this big Delta jet going to San Francisco. Nobody knew what was going on. There was no like service, no water, nothing on the plane. You just kind of sat there, um, people ranging from wearing hazmat suits, literally uh, all the way to like makeshift masks. And I, I just remember like imprinting that in my brain. Like it was, a, it was a late night flight, so it was dark. And I just remember looking at the faces of like the 10 other folks and I'm like, are we gonna survive this or not? Like, what's happening here? Um, but yeah, I mean, it was early mornings, it was late nights, but I mean, I couldn't imagine a more impactful piece of work to be doing. And I'm excited that we got to be a part of it. 
So I have another question from Zoom and then we can turn it over to our audience members in person, but can you all speak to how the program changed as the needs changed? We started to come out of the pandemic, but we also start, started to see um, some emergency response happening here in the US and how you were able to use care package relief to respond to some of the disasters here in the US. Yeah, maybe. So maybe let's get perspective from Andy and Michelle on that one, because they sure. also have kind of the bigger perspective around how that evolved. I wish I had a great answer. Good question, <laughs> Zoom participant. Um, <clears throat> I think that to, to Marcus's early point, you know, at first, the first thing that the team had to do was just simply to move food to people who needed it most. And then we thought about how we could employ people. Um, and then there are just these moments, y'all, that you have a chance to rise to meet the moment. And I think that when it was Hurricane Ida yeah. was the first time that the care package relief team looked at something that was happening in a part of the country that we could get to, that we had partners that we believed deeply in. And we said, I think we can do a little bit more. Um, and we were really lucky to have built really good partnerships. I'm looking at you, Pastor Lee, to say, you know, the thing we're doing, let's do that, but like times 10, maybe times 100. And I can say that from the perspective of the team that sort of sits behind these fabulous folks trying to make sure that they're resourced, it was an opportunity also for us to speak to the American public and say, you know, care has value in all kinds of places, but only because of the partners with whom we work and we have a chance to do something quickly and, um, and deeply impactful. And so it was a bit of a, um, you know, talk about taking risks over and over again. We were like, well, let's see, let's <laughs> see how that goes. And um, I'll speak for my colleague who actually runs a different fundraising program than, than, um, than I'm a part of. It was amazing to see how many like 10 and $15 donations came in and really started to stack for that relief. And so we knew by the time the, the tornadoes hit um, in, Kentucky that we knew how to do this. Um, and the interesting thing about Kentucky was we had to start new partnerships um, really quickly in the moment. Um, and we leaned on all of the work that the team had done uh, in terms of how do we move quickly, move with trust, um, but also really keeping our eye on the fact that people were in need right now and we didn't have the privilege or the luxury of sort of spending a couple of weeks to figure out how to get it done. So um, it's changed a bunch over, over the last several years. And um, I'm just really excited and continually looking forward to see what continues to come in the days ahead. Uh, yeah, the only thing I would add is if you if you start with the basics, if we was we were trying to deliver food to people who weren't going to be able to have it, we were trying to help support people who might not have um, a, a living wage or maybe un, unemployed or underemployed. And then I think over time, one of the things we realized is that we'd created this network of local organizations, and then we started to I think conceptualize how much that was. Uh, akin to the work that we do around the world in terms of the network of partnerships in countries around the world. And, and then I think seeing, starting to see that as one of the assets that we wanna build upon that was unique and, and that, um, that network of extraordinary uh, partners is, is now I think sort of the platform upon which I think we're thinking about our broader work. And uh, so I think that's an exciting evolution as well. And just from like a local standpoint or a partnership standpoint, right? Food and nutrition access is not something that was created by the pandemic. It's something that folks across this country have been dealing with for a very long time and have been whispering, you know, please pay attention. This is something that we need. So being able to provide this through the pandemic and seeing the needs still there, of course, after the pandemic, um, I think it's really important just to recognize that being able to do this work allows those people to not just be surviving, but try to thrive, right? right. They can think about other things. They can try to be whole and make their communities whole. So yes, providing these resources for people is really important in that way because it uplifts people in, in ways that we may not think about. It's, it's bigger than food, way bigger than so Nicole, want to build on that question because we just had another one um, come in and want to pull in Pastor Lee as well. When you all brought the Care Package Relief Program to your community, what was the response from people? <laughs> For our community, at least the response was, we really appreciate seeing this so much more often, right? Like I, I mentioned, it's something that we have been doing before but the need was exacerbated by the pandemic and just the uncertainty that it brought to people and their, their bottom line and their households. So people were excited that it was something 
consistent that they could count on because it allowed them to think about other things. Um, and it was something that they could get involved in too, right? Our volunteerism went way up once we were out there more often. So with our taskers and with our dashers, we had our own folks from the community out there asking how they could help, you know, donating an hour or two when they could, bringing bags to us. Um, so it really was about, and, and this is something I really love about this work, it's not just providing for each other, but it's building community, which oftentimes is lost in these modern times. Um, kids are out, you know, they know who we are and we know who our neighbors are and people are meeting each other. So yeah, the response from the community has been wonderful. And I don't think they want to see us leave, um, which speaks not just to, you know, the joy that this brings, but also to the need that, that folks still have. So yeah. Yeah. Love that. And I'm going to pull in Pastor Lee too, because you were super crucial to the work that we did after the winter storm in Texas. So can you talk a little bit about how the community kind of perceived this program? In, in our community, just as uh, just was stated that, the, can you hear? Can you hear Not me? really. No. Let me, I can project. I am a Let's give, well, for the folks who are, who are live streaming, yeah. I, I literally can, okay. Is that? Uh, in, in our community, we uh, the, the winter storm, in, in just response to that, when that winter storm came through, the assistance that we received from, from care.org was to help us do what we were already doing on the ground. In our community, we, we are a staple of that community. And we had a lot of workers and we had a lot of work. But when we were able to put people to work, we were able to take the volunteers from volunteerism and to working because, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to, to uh, easier to get people to do the work if you're paying them. <clears throat> so that helped us a lot during the, the winter storm from Hurricane Harvey. We were serving 2,500 people a day during Hurricane Harvey in 2017. And I saw the tax that it was on the volunteers. You could just see the people wearing, they want to help. The community wants to help. They want to give back. They want to do the work. But after about two or three weeks, your numbers go from 100 to 70 to 40. And then some of those that have been there from the very beginning, those are the ones that kind of get run down. So when the winter storm came and because of the relationship that we had with you guys and how the, the program kind of carried over into the work that we did through the winter storm, being able to, to offer people jobs, it was a lot easier. We could schedule people. We could uh, have the people have time off and pay is a great incentive. <laughs> pay is a great incentive, if, you, if you, you will. We love our volunteers. But the, when we're able to tell people that we can help you support your family and help you through this crisis, that was one of the, uh, I guess, the major, had a major impact on us in, the, in our community. Thanks, Pastor Lee. So now we're going to open it up to our audience members here in the audience. So if you want to ask a question, feel free just to push the little button on the tabletop mic and ask your question. No worries. Um, first of all, I just wanted to say thank you and really applaud you for what you're doing. It, it means a lot, you know, for Atlanta to do something like this. And what it represents for me is that it's, it's about connection. And when you build something, build a program based on connection, it's about love. And love, when you build something based on love, then it's the truth. You know, it's, it's lasting. And I really feel like it being in Atlanta, this program being in Atlanta, we're really living up to Dr. King's message of building this beloved community. And so I just really applaud you on this. And my question is, um, what, uh, to what other sectors do you imagine CARE moving into in addition to food, secure, food security insecurity in Atlanta and also in the US with the you know, global local connection. And just to introduce myself, my name is Obsey. I'm from Emory University. Um, maybe I'll give like a quick teaser and then I'll, I'll let Michelle talk about kind of the macro effort. So when we, when we dreamed up work in the United States through the Innovation Hub, the idea was that we would leverage at that time care 70 plus years. Now we're past 76 years of expertise, of learning, of partnerships, of knowledge, of programming all around the world find those things that might be suited for the US context 
and take the risk of experimenting and innovating and seeing what things might catch on in our local context. Um, and so I think the Care Package Relief Program is a great example of that. We knew that there were going to be folks who were food insecure. We knew that we could work much more efficiently and much um, at much greater scale through partnership. And so we tried the thing and it caught and it, and it went much further. Um, but CARES work around the world obviously extends well beyond food security and job access. And so we would hope that some of those things also find their way to the US um, in a context that fits our needs and, and is appropriate for our communities. Michelle, I don't know if you have yeah, I, I mean, I think the um, the so if, if you think about the some of the areas that care works around the world, uh, food, food security, one um, women's economic empowerment, another. So we, we actually are modeling and piloting our savings program that works in 50 different countries around the world here in the U.S., um, seeing what's applicable, uh, what the lessons are, what the modifications are. So that would be a, a second domain. Um, this is morphed into a kind of emergency response. CARE does humanitarian work around the world. So that's a, a third dimension. And then a fourth dimension that we haven't yet entered into, but where I think there is some applicability is around um, health. So CARE does work around maternal mortality around the world. We, you know, obviously there are high rates of maternal mortality and that have grown, especially uh, with black women. And um, so are there ways that we can take some of those lessons and, and apply them here? Um, frontline community health workers, we, you know, we, we work around the world um, with those, with those largely uh, high, high percentage of women. So what is that, what are the lessons learned and how can we apply that here? But, you know, I think we're still at the beginning of our journey, very much learning into the, leaning into the learning with partners, but those are some of the things that I think that are um, either happening or on the horizon. Yeah. yeah. And Marcus, I know we, we actually talked just before we started about some of the programs layering. So maybe you might share with the group what we were discussing offline. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we're in a very interesting time after, you know, building, standing up our program in seven different markets, having over 50 partners. We now have this care package network that we're calling uh, that will enable us to begin to kind of have our suite of services in all of our different markets. And so, uh, for example, you know, we have our emergency relief efforts. However, whenever we go in to create a workforce to respond to, an, uh, to devastation, we also include our direct cash assistance to those uh, residents so that we can also have a, a direct impact from other programs that are familiar with care. Um, I think there's a world where we are going to continue to be uh, proactive about developing a workforce uh, which also means that people are developing new skills, which means that there are people that are uh, getting into new careers. And so currently uh, we have a workforce of 20 women that worked uh, in the uh, Hurricane Ida relief effort. Uh, we're going to triple that effort in Western Kentucky, a uh, woman-based uh, relief uh, workforce that will be licensed uh, and certified in uh, resiliency work. So that is hazmat, uh, recovery, uh, that is building new skills that will teach them how to continue to move forward. And so what I'm seeing, Ryan, is that if we could, you know, continue to be in the right place at the right time, yeah. right? Right now, just by happenstance, we happen to be in parts of the country where we had a presence. But what happens when there are more fires in California, right? What happens when we see more hurricanes and tornadoes across the nation? We want to be there uh, in order to respond uh, in a proactive way instead of being reactive. So I think that there's a 2.0 here with developing skills, developing a workforce, keeping all of the necessary uh, pillars about care that are focusing on women and girls at the forefront as well, and going full speed uh, with that uh, energy that we have from the network and the foundation that we've already created. Yeah, <clears throat> well, something that Marcus said that I'm really excited about, um, <clears throat> and we want to shine a light on it, so not to gloss over it, is that direct cash assistance. Uh, this is something that CARE is one of the undisputed global leaders in. We have a bunch of experience and why it makes really good sense to make sure that we give people the dignity of choice. To Nicole's earlier point, people and communities, they know what they need. And when we are able to give them fast and flexible cash, we give them the dignity to choose what their family needs most in that moment. And we can move really quickly. 
Um, so we have some systems some back offices that have been set up over time. And we have a lot of experience in the global space that teaches us how we can do this in the United States. And let's be honest, y'all, what people need often is they simply need the cash to do the things that they know that their family most, most urgently needs. Um, and then we can wrap around holistic services from there. But I'm really excited because I think that CARE has done a really incredible job globally in getting cash assistance um, built into so many of our programs, humanitarian and otherwise, but it is something that is a little bit uncomfortable for a lot of funders and even some program teams in the United States. And I'm really excited to see this group kind of uh, <clears throat> addressing and hopefully, I think, um, demystifying some of the myths around what cash assistance really looks like. It, it looks like dignity and it looks like choice. And shout out to Bianca who leads that cash work for us. <laughs> So we do have time for another question or two. Are there any more questions from the audience here? Yes, Gloria, feel free to turn your mic on as well. Thank you. Um, Ryan, this is really more for you to start, you know, when you came up with this idea. Uh, most of us who've only worked internationally feel the compulsion to do something because of the desperation we see, the helplessness, the poverty of the country. What motivated you to do something here when, you know, our country is different, it has safety nets, etc. They're not the same as the, you know, the developing countries where we work. What is it that motivated you to come up with that idea? I'll, um, say, I'll say a few things about that. So one, I always think about something that I heard um, one of our colleagues, Christian Panati said, and I, I love repeating it because I think it, it just nails it. And Christian said, this is a few years ago, I heard him say this. He said, you know, we do all these amazing things around the world and it's time for us to get active around the corner because many of those same issues exist in communities here in the US. And I, I just love that. I think it so succinctly captures uh, why we wanted to get active in the US. And then I, I think about my own lived experiences. And so um, I've had the good fortune of seeing many different ways of life and traveling to different parts of the world. But I always think about the neighborhoods that I grew up in. I think about the year that my family was homeless. I think about what it felt like to be um, seven kids, five adults living in a two bedroom, one bathroom house, right? That was here in the US. That was on Century Boulevard in LA. Um, so I didn't have to go, you know, to some other part of the world to understand what it felt like to live through challenge, to live through, um, you know, just the difficulties of not knowing where you might get, how you might get to the next node. And so that always stays with me. I think about that lived experience all the time. And then thirdly, before I joined CARE, I was working with an organization called Purpose Built Schools. Um, and we have a, Purpose Built has a footprint of schools just about three and a half miles away from here. So just down the road from CARE. And one of our communities sits in the lowest income census district in the entire state of Georgia. And I think about the rising cost of living in Atlanta and all the different challenges here. And yet we've got a group of folks just a stone's throw away that are struggling literally to meet their everyday needs around housing security, around food access, access to jobs, access uh, to skills. And so all of those things are with me. And those are the things that I think about and um, our team just had a really cool opportunity to step up in that moment. And again, take some of the amazing lessons and the things that we've learned and all the infrastructure, all of our colleagues from the support functions and legal and accounting and all of those things that we could rally really quickly to do some really cool things in our community. And for me, that was the North Star, um, not just in this effort, but just generally, it's the thing that, that drives me forward. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Ryan, so just being mindful of time, yeah. I think we can go ahead and wrap up. We have no more questions in the chat as well. So I'm throwing it back to you for right, the last cool. question, the fun one. Uh, all right, yes, yeah, so in true Tuesday Talk fashion, we always try to close by asking our speakers to share with us one thing that you're doing these days to create joy or something that you're experiencing in the world around you that's a deep source of joy. So we'll just go right in order, starting with Marcus ending with Nicole. Yeah, uh, it's funny. The first time I was on Tuesday Talks, it was like, what were you doing during the pandemic, right? And I think you spoke to my heart about depleting uh, my liquor cabinet. I think that was my hobby, just <laughs> at home. Uh, but now that things are seemingly coming back to a normal state, 
just enjoying going to a restaurant and having a meal. And so my wife and I have like a bi-weekly date night where we choose a new restaurant in the city. We sit there for hours and talk. We get a babysitter. It's so much fun. So I'm just enjoying, you know, being back in the presence of human beings and seeing all of these faces that were just pictures on Zoom, where your whether your cameras were on or off, <laughs> and now uh, seeing you all in person. So I'm just enjoying that human interaction again. Uh, it brings me joy, and uh, being able to just be normal again is, uh, you know, I took it for granted, and uh, now I will not yeah. <laughs> for sure. Uh, perhaps less eloquent than Marcus's, but connected to food. <clears throat> Something that we did, uh, which I hope we continue, is each time we'd go to, this is a bit silly. I hope that's okay. Of course. But each time we went to the grocery store, we bought one thing we'd never tasted before. And y'all, I have had some real unusual stuff. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of fruits in the world I never need to have again. Um, but I leave you with this professional tip. Um, if y'all have not tried something called spicy chili crisp, Oh, there is yes, yes. friend, you know, the truth. Yes. <laughs> this stuff is like $5. Um, it is the one that I love is called, oh, I'll probably butcher it. Lao Gan Ma yes. little red label it's $5. It, it, it will make everything you eat better. Yes. Even if you burn it, which happens in my house. a good bit. <laughs> um, So I would say we just really enjoyed That's kind cool. of traveling through our grocery store visits. That's awesome. Uh, well, I have just gotten back from a trip to see our care team in Poland, so I am just really grateful for the opportunity of once again being able to be connected in person and to bear witness to the extraordinary leadership of our teams around the world. And uh, I'm also, um, believe it or not, I am really relishing and finding a lot of joy in my 17-year-old daughter's discovery of learning to play the drums. <laughs> Uh, that's interesting my eight-year-old is learning to play the drums right now so. <laughs> <laughs> we'll compare notes yeah. later right um so i'm a hiker you find me in a mountain somewhere that's what i do for fun um preferably alone but i will happily bring my husband if he really wants to come <laughs> um and then I, I have um two daughters so we have taken on the task of watching all the marvel movies and shows oh, cool. from beginning in order so that's been a lot of fun i love it with that said that's a wrap for our first in-person tuesday talk in two years a round of applause for everybody We got DJ Sofa in person. He's gonna hang out with us for the next 30-ish minutes. So DJ Sofa for the first time in person in two years. Over to you to take us away.